listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Today, we're talking about parables. I've taught the parables for years, and it always comes as a surprise to the students that the parables are not just object lessons. It's not just that Jesus was a very good teacher and he could take abstract spiritual truths and communicate them to the common folk. Parables are much more than that. Parables are like riddles. They conceal as much as they reveal. They're invitations to lean in and to listen and to listen again and to see if we can figure out what the lesson is. I'm not saying that parables are meant to confuse kind of ultimately, but they conceal a lot until the revelation, until the reveal, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, as Jesus says. Parables come in all sorts of forms. Some of them are just little one-liners. Others are more like short proverbs. The kingdom of God is like, Jesus says that a lot. The kingdom of God is like a lost coin, or the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, or the kingdom of God is like a wonderful treasure that's been found in a field. Then we also have parables that are long, like stories. They have like a beginning, a middle, and the end. And there seems to be kind of resting just on the surface a very clear moral to the story. But often, there's something deeper going on. The parables are first and foremost about Jesus. So as we're reading the parables or we're hearing the parables, we shouldn't necessarily be trying to find ourselves in the story as much as we are trying to find Jesus in the story. Jesus and his message, his good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is close, it's coming, it's near, and that's good news. I want you to listen to this short video that's been put together by the Bible Project. They're great folks, and they have a wonderful kind of explanation of parables. Let's listen to what they have to say. How to read the parables of Jesus. Now there's many great teachers that throughout history have used stories to teach students about morality, religion, philosophy. But Jesus didn't use his parables to teach abstract religious or moral ideals. He said that his parables were about himself and his mission. His mission, which was to announce that the kingdom of God was arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So in Jesus' day, the Israelites were ruled by the Roman Empire. But their scriptures promised that one day their God would come to rule his people as king. And so many Israelites wanted to revolt against Rome and fight for their freedom. And this is what some people thought of as the kingdom of God. Exactly. But Jesus was a poor traveling prophet, healing the sick, inviting people to follow him. And he said that this was the arrival of God's kingdom. And that didn't fit people's expectations. Right. And so Jesus used some parables to help people imagine that his small movement was the arrival of God's kingdom. Oh, yeah, like the parable that the kingdom of God is yeast hidden in a lump of dough. 
and you might not see its influence, but it's going to change everything. Jesus also told parables about the upside-down values of God's kingdom, about how the least important people in the world are actually the most important people to God, especially those who are poor and of low status. Yeah, like the parable about the business owner who hired workers throughout the day, in the morning, later in the day, and even towards the end of the day. And when it was time to pay everyone, he paid them all the same wage. Right. Jesus is showing how money and status are irrelevant to God, who offers his generous mercy to everybody. Now, not all of the parables have happy endings. Some are really intense. Yes, Jesus stood in the tradition of Israel's prophets, who also told parables to criticize Israel's leaders because they mistook their kingdom for God's. So Jesus warned the leaders of his day, if they don't accept his offer of God's kingdom, they're headed for destruction. Yeah, like the parable of the landowner who built a wonderful vineyard and he expects it to produce fruit. Yes, Jesus gets this parable from the prophet Isaiah, but then he adapts it. Right, and so the landowner appoints managers to take care of this vineyard. And at harvest, he sends servants to collect the fruit. But those managers kill the servants. And so the landowner sends his own son to confront the managers, and they kill him too. And so Jesus asked the people around him, what do you all think this landowner should do? Oh, he's going to punish those managers and hire new ones. Jesus knew that if Israel kept on their current path, they would be destroyed by Rome. And so in parables like this, he's forcing people to make a decision about his offer of God's kingdom. Are people going to reject him, ignore him, or trust and follow him? Now, if this message of God's kingdom is so important, why cloak it in parables? Why not be more clear? Well, through riddles and parables, Jesus could make really bold claims that revealed truth to people who were open-minded. For those who have ears to hear, they could ponder it and go deeper. But the parables would also conceal his message from those who were against him so that he could buy more time. Buy time for what? Well, Jesus was preparing his closest followers for the greatest surprise yet. Jesus claimed that Israel's God was coming to rule over his people not through coercion or violent force, but through self-giving love as he was going to die for their sins. But his death wasn't the end. Right. He said that his death would be like a tiny seed buried in the ground. But then it would grow and produce a crop with many seeds. So these parables, they explain who Jesus was and what he was up to. And the gospel authors have preserved these parables so that now every generation of Jesus' followers can read and ponder them. And imagine how God's kingdom is still at work even today. Right. These ancient parables are still full of new surprises and challenges. They're like a storehouse packed with treasures, some that are new, some that are old, and it's all just waiting to be discovered. Today's lesson, we're going to be looking at the parable of the sower. It is perhaps the most famous parable of Jesus. And there are lots of ways it can be interpreted. The most common, of course, is the one I heard kind of growing up, where the different types of soil represent different types of people. The rocky soil or the soil that's kind of infested with thorns or the hard soil by the path, as opposed to the final, the good soil that can be very productive. And as I was taught this parable, 
I had a choice to kind of which type of soil I was going to be, that my heart would represent one of those types of soils. And if I was going to be responsive to the message of Jesus, if I was going to be saved, that my, my heart would have to be like the good soil. There's parts of that that I really love. I certainly believe in kind of personal conversion and in evangelism. There are some ways in which I think that that interpretation of the parable probably needs to be interrogated. The idea that I can just so easily choose what type of heart I'm going to have. I mean, if I could easily choose that, I would always choose what's right. I mean, I would I would never choose to be kind of oppressed by the world like the thorny soil or or to be kind of infested with 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 rocks so that I can't be a person of depth or to be so downtrodden, I would be hard-hearted like the path. So it's, it's perhaps more than just a simple choice that lays before us. Something else might be going on, something else that might reach beyond just me individually into us kind of collectively and what might be happening. Let's listen to the parable and see if we can't have new and fresh ears to hear what it might be saying to us. Good morning, Oasis. Our scripture in this morning will be Matthew 13, 1 through 9. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there. While the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Matthew thirteen eighteen to 23 Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what was sown on the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while, and when trouble or persecution arises on account of the world, that person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So one way to interpret this parable, as I said before, is to read it as kind of personal conversion and personal maybe evangelism. And I think, I think a lot of that is true. I don't want to discard that. Um, to use the words of Richard Rohr, I want to include and transcend I want to avoid this idea of dualism, like we either are in or out and we know what's right and what's wrong, and it's, it's us versus them. 
I, w- I want to be a bit more inclusive in this understanding. In the time of Jesus, there were lots of expectations about what the kingdom of God would look like. So when Jesus said, I've got good news, the kingdom of God is at hand, people's ears, the Jewish ears would have perked up. They would have said, okay, Rabbi, let's, let's hear about it. And there were expectations about what the Messiah would be. And so there were some of these groups that were real separatist. We might call them uh, the Essenes. They kind of lived out in their own communities. And to, to quote uh, Richard Niebuhr's Christ from Culture, they were kind of Christ against culture. Their Messiah was not going to come and, and kind of transform the world so much as just correct it. That their way of being in the world was opposed to the world. And so they lived their separatist life. And there were a lot of very important kind of Christian thinkers who could fit into that category from the early church to Tullian. And then later, Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, seems to write in that same kind of mindset. I kind of think of, of folks in the, in the Christian subculture this way, you know, Christian television and Christian radio and Christian music, and Christian education. I mean, in a lot of ways, my life fits, fits that. You know, we homeschool our girls. I teach at a private Christian college that there's at least part of me or part of the way I've lived have been in that kind of separatist, kind of Christ against culture way of viewing things. Of course, that wasn't the only expectation of the Messiah in the first century. There were other expectations. There were those of the Sadducees and the Herodians. They were really politically involved. Uh, Again, to use Niebuhr's category, we might call this the Christ of culture, that Christ and culture were kind of one because their way of being in the world was kind of dominating. Uh, A certain type of Christendom would fit into this category, where if the king is, is Christian and the emperor is Christian, then the nation and the empire are Christian, and that's just the way we live. There have been Christians who fit into this category, too. Uh, Abelard would be a famous one from the past. But really, anybody who's experienced a fair amount of privilege, like if you can look around at your context, and it pretty much operates the way you think it should, like the status quo benefits you, then it would be easy to kind of fit into this Christ of culture category that we can advocate for a certain kind of politics. And if our politicians get elected, either at the local, state or federal level, then our values will be, will be deemed the most important and will be legislated. And like, that's the way. And certainly there are a lot of Christians who could fall into this category too. I might be quick to kind of underscore again that these categories are not mutually exclusive. Again, we want to avoid this dualism. We want to kind of include and transcend. Another major um, expectation during the time of Jesus, and you would have heard of this, we might call this kind of Christ above culture, that God's ultimately in charge and God is sovereign. And so everything that's happening is part of God's plan, moving us from our brokenness and kind of the first creation towards something new and something better. It's just a matter of how we might get there. I mean, both the Pharisees and the Zealots 
would have fit into this category uh, primarily during Jesus's time. Of course, they had different ways of how they might get there. So the Pharisees thought they would get there, like the Christ would come and the Christ would kind of establish, you know, this kingdom and it would be religious. And the way we get there is through our Torah obedience, obedience to the law, obedience to God, like being righteous, being pious, being good people. Like that's how you're blessed by God. And that's what will get us there. The Zealots also felt like their actions would lead them into the kingdom of God. But it wasn't so much about being pious, about being righteous, about just being obedient to the law. It was about taking up arms, kind of fighting for our group. You know, that when the time comes, we have to fight for our group to kind of overcome the, the world. And the zealots would certainly be in that category. And I would think... You know, throughout time, there have been lots of folks who would fit into that category. Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria in the ancient world. A major thinker would be Thomas Aquinas, who tried to kind of incorporate all the wisdom of the world also into the wisdom of God and those kind of highest virtues of faith, hope and love. So that's, you know, again, this kind of Christ above culture. There, there are kind of subcategories to those groups, perhaps say not, not all the Pharisees were cut from the same cloth. Um, some saw it more as a form of paradox, like it's, you know, we're going to try and follow God and we're going to do so by obeying the Torah and particularly when it comes to kind of the animal sacrifice and the temple. And you had others who, who were kind of domesticating that more. The, they were more liberal, I guess, or more open-minded. And they felt like following God had to do with kind of reading and obeying the Torah. And you could do that through your prayers and through your life. And it wasn't just a matter of making your way to Jerusalem to make the sacrifice. But where two people read the Torah, God was with them. And so they, they saw life as this kind of paradox that, that God is sovereign, but also we live in a world that's broken. And certainly we can see why, why that would have, have an appeal. Another form of this kind of Christ above culture, Niebuhr calls Christ the transformer, like Christ is transforming culture. So in the ancient world, Augustine would certainly fit into this category, or during the Reformation, uh, John Calvin would. Luther might have been more of that Christ in paradox. But all of these expectations, these kind of ancient expectations of the, the Essenes who were kind of separatists and the Sadducees and Herodians who were kind of political, the Pharisees who were very religious or the Zealots who were kind of militant, they all had their expectations of what they thought the Christ would be like. They are like all those different types of soil. But Jesus is like, no, there, there's, a, there's a better way. There's some good soil, and good soil, for, and farmers know this, good soil doesn't just happen. Good soil gets cultivated. Good soil gets taken care of. Uh, good soil gets planted for a while and harvested, and then it gets some time to rest. Good soil gets water, and good soil um, is cared for. And that's what I mean by we don't have to 
fit into kind of just one category all of the time. We'll find ourselves at different times in our lives and we'll find other people within our lives who kind of come from different perspectives. And all of those do have value. Now, sometimes they need to be interrogated. Sometimes they're carried too far. Sometimes they're kind of presented to us as very exclusivist, like this is the way and there, there is no other way to follow Jesus. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that he's kind of calling these people, these people who've had these very particular perspectives of what it was like for the kingdom to come. And he was saying, come to me. Jesus here is the seed. He's, the story is about him, and it's about his message of the gospel. And of course, that comes all the way down to individually, like the, the, the kind of traditional, I'll call it, interpretation that I grew up with, that, that we individually can respond to Jesus. We can, we can ask for forgiveness of our sins. We can repent of our expectations of how the world was supposed to be and, and what our expectations would look like for, for Jesus to come into our lives. And And sometimes that repenting might be repenting of our overly political view of Christianity, or maybe our overly pious or religious view of Christianity, or maybe our over kind of separatist view of Christianity, and realize that that Jesus has a message. It's blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And blessed are the poor. It's the go the second mile and turn the other cheek and give them your shirt when they sue you for your coat. It's the judge, lest not you be judged kingdom. It is, it is a message. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. It is a message of abundance. It's not a message of scarcity. The, the good soil doesn't just produce some. It produces a lot, 30, 60, 100 fold. That's like unheard of. It's, it's, it's so much more than what we need. And I think that goes for everything. The grace that God gives us, the mercy, the forgiveness, the love, the joy, the hope. All of these things are given to us in abundance. And that's good news. And it's good news for others, too, because now that, that we hold those things in abundance, we have more than what we need so that we, too, can share with others. We can share our resources. We can share of ourselves. We can share forgiveness and love and mercy and grace and joy and hope and peace because that's who our God is. There's a great novel by Frederick Buechner called On the Road with an Archangel. I'd, I'd highly recommend it. But just, just one point about it that I really love. There, the archangel Raphael is one of the main characters in the story. And, and he's helping uh, Tobias, the son of Tobit, on this journey. And one of the things that I really love about it, I mean, there's these wonderful characters in the story, as all good stories have, and beautiful kind of um, narrative arcs and character arcs to these characters and to the story itself. 
but all of these characters in the story have somewhat of a, uh, of a thwarted view of who God is. Um, Tobit, one of the main characters, refers to God as the divine scorekeeper, like he's just keeping tabs of you know, what we do wrong and what we do right. And others have this view that kind of that God is kind of waiting for us to do something wrong so he can he can jump out and ha I got you. And it, it kind of makes uh, uh, Raphael, the archangel, it makes him laugh and it makes him a little sad, like they don't really know the creator. Like the blessed one is so much more and, and so much uh, lo- so lovely and so beautiful and so loving. Um, and that people just just don't get it. Like, God loves us more than we even love ourselves. God wants the very best for us. God, God is, is coming to us. That's the good news. The kingdom is coming. We've been praying for it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as it comes, it's, it's the good news that saves, that that redeems, that judges in, 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 the, in the best way, right? Setting wrongs right and separating us from, from the evil, even the evil that we participate in. That's good news. And God, the way in which the, the, in the story, Bigner is able to kind of portray God is just, is just so lovely. It's so beautiful. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what Jesus was doing in the parables, and even in this parable. Not, not kind of cutting everybody off and saying everything you've done is 100% wrong, but rather kind of including them, transcending beyond their just kind of overly wooden kind of fundamentalist ways, and saying, look, yes, Yes, there's, there's ways in which um, there's certain parts of the culture that we are against. We're against the evil. We're against the injustice. And yes, there's certain parts of the culture that we are with, uh, the art and the beauty. And, and yes, there's certain ways in which Christ is above the culture. He is the king of this new kingdom. And yes, there are some paradox that that we can't quite figure out how those two things are existing in these times. And Jesus will tell parables about that too. And we believe that, that Christ is a transformer, that, that he's not going to leave us in the mess that uh, we sometimes find ourselves in. So all of those things have value. And, and the best of those views is really even just the beginning of telling us the good news of Jesus. And so I encourage you to kind of resist this kind of dualistic thinking. It's difficult because when you're in it, it's all you can see. I I actually hesitated even even preaching about this because um, I really wish I could be with you. And maybe we could talk back and forth and Maybe I could explain it a little better than what I'm able to do just here, you know, talking to the camera. It's easier to understand once we've kind of gone past it and we can kind of see, like once we've transcended and then we can still kind of include and not just dismiss. If we're always dismissing 
other people's points of views, that is a sure sign that we've yet to transcend our own kind of juvenile spot. But I think Jesus is calling us to something more. And it is so lovely. And I just, I just want to kind of whet your appetite for it. I, I, I want to invite you into, into a way of being in the world that I believe kind of mimics Jesus. I mean, he can, he can be pretty harsh, our Lord. But we shouldn't forget that he's often harshest on religious folk, and in particular, religious leaders. And I don't take that lightly. As a person who both, whether at the college or in the church world, kind of function, function as a leader, that Jesus' harshest words might be directed almost, you know, at me in particular and folks like me. So this parable, like I think all the parables, invite us to kind of read and reread, to think and rethink, to lean in, to listen again. And I hope that somehow this interpretation that I've offered to you today, which is might be new to you, um, but it's not uncommon. Uh, the church has, parts of the church and particularly parts of the academy have been reading this parable like this for quite a while now. But I'm happy to share it with you, and I hope that it blesses you. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.